you're 10 times more likely to die from suicide than from murder. Focus on the competition, yes. But the thing that kills you is not going to be the competition. You know, because realistically, if you've picked a big enough market, you're not going to have 100% market penetration, right? There's always going to be competitors. The thing that's going to kill you is suicide. And that normally comes down to people. Roy, welcome to the show. Uh, you started a business called Real Sport at the age of 21. You did that for a number of years. Like, unlike many, you succeeded building a business out of university. After five years, you're about 26, mm -hmm. sold that business for a number of millions. You then took a bit of time and then you started Connected. What's Connected? Tell me about it. First of all, thank you so much for that. Um, and, you know, as with any uh, early business, so much luck on that side of things as well. Luck and a bit of good timing. In terms of Connected, we're essentially providing tools to the early stage ecosystem to empower them to make and manage meaningful connections. So giving founders, advisors, board members and investors everything that they need to discover and maintain relationships. Amazing. You now employ hundreds of people, or 100 plus people. 100 plus, yeah. 100 yeah, plus yeah. people. Th thankfully, not more than that. Right <laughs> so you employ 100 plus people. What keeps you up at night? Oh, everything. Um, <laughs> I think the stakes have changed so much. When you're early stage founder, maybe just you and a couple other people in the team, the stakes are, are still high. It means a lot to you. It's your baby, everything else. But it's a very, very different set of challenges. Of course, wanting to make sure that we can continue to build a culture that allows people to grow and have personal development as well as achieving the teams and the organization's goals is really, really important. Um, and then just making sure that everyone is really aligned. You know, I think there's so much which happens in a business of that size where teams are really driving for the team goals. So if you're marketing, it might be lead gen or it might be engagement. If you're on sales, it might be conversion. But having a culture which says the team goals are secondary to the company goals and actually me as, mar me as a marketing uh, head, I care about the outcomes of the customer success team or I care about the outcomes of the product team. That's really the things which we've got to make sure that we maintain uh, with a business of this size. Mm, amazing. So Real Sport, you, it was a content creation platform, topics, trends in the sport mm -hmm. industry. I love sport, you love sport. Different time zones. There's so much going on out there in the world of sport. How did you manage that process across, let's say, UK, Asia, the US? Oh man, it was brutal. Our three biggest cities as well were London, New York, and Sydney. So we were, oh, wow. we were spread through and we had a big user base in California as well. So yeah, really, really tough on that side. Um, B2C as well, sports, content creation, never off. So it was, it was really tough. You know, we had teams working around the clock. Me and my co-founder at the time did very little sleeping for, for the first two, three years, uh, but all part of the fun, right? Mm, 100%. So you decided to stick to the UK with Connected until the back end of 2023, where you're taking on the US as a market. Yeah. So the way that Connected works really lends itself to achieving a cross-border network effect because the way that people utilize the technology really distributes it across different regions. So for example, if you're a founder distributing reports to investors or an investor trying to centralize reports from your portfolio, yes, you might have lots of people in London, but you could have people in San Francisco, Stockholm, Singapore, Sydney, 
other cities that don't start with an S. And <laughs> therefore, we ended up with users in about 15, 16 countries. But they were using it in a really, really makeshift way. So we spent the last four or five months really optimizing, doing localization and iteration for the US market, and then formally launched in early December. So just about to hit two months, very, very early, but we're, we're really thrilled to be there. Amazing. So advice to a founder, a founder has a potential global reach business. They, let's say, establish in the UK or have a revenue model that's working in the UK and they are looking to the big market of the US. What's your advice for logistical steps to establish themselves in that market? Well, I think one of the biggest risks with any international expansion is death by a thousand paper cuts, right? You're normally really good at doing the big stuff. How are we going to change all the language? How are we going to make sure that, you know, the marketing makes sense? We've looked at price sensitivity, but actually how do they process transactions and, you know, which are their, their favorite processes or, you know, what times of the day are people more likely to speak to if you're in a B2C environment or, you know, all of these little things add up in a big way. So if you can take a low risk route of international expansion, you know, utilizing the fact that post COVID, most customer acquisition can be done virtually rather than needing face to face. Do you need people on the ground? Can you operate, you know, remote or, or hybrid employment policy even with that? Probably yes to start. So I think it's a case of understanding how effective your existing marketing sales strategy might be in those territories, you know, with uh, assumptive optimization there, but then trying to be as low risk as possible. So we got very, very fortunate with Connected um, in that we could do most things virtually. So we actually found ourselves cash flow positive in month one of the US operation, um, which is which is great and allows us to, to slowly but surely scale up. Yeah, so what's the, what's the plan? Is it many flights to New York? Are you setting up a team there? I mean, there are perks of the job. Uh, holiday to New York is not always the... Uh, the worst thing, although probably working holiday. <laughs> yeah, well, we actually chose Miami. Okay. Nothing to do with the weather, I promise. And certainly, not didn't sure pick, I believe you. <laughs> yeah, and certainly didn't pick December because it was during England English winter time. Um, but no, we we actually for us LinkedIn's a really important acquisition channel. So we just ran a research project with LinkedIn, applying our most successful campaigns, um, audience size, CPAs, all the usual stuff basically did a, a, a replication of that across all 50 states and we found that florida was really really powerful for us so and also got a good network out in miami already um so yeah absolutely back and forth on the plane for now um probably spending 10 days a month there for the Amazing. foreseeable and then once we hit a certain level of traction probably around six seven hundred k arr i'll probably take the plunge and move out full time wow I could think of worse things to be doing than spending my currently very cold months in London instead of going to Miami in the sun. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but, you know, as a founder, there's there's the other side, right? It sounds amazing and it will be amazing and really, really excited for it. But then there's all the other things as well. You know, you make enough sacrifices as a founder while staying in your, you know, your home city. All of those you know, key events that you missed, which are so important in friendships, the weddings, the birthdays, all of those things, you know, again, you're taking another step away from a reality, as mm -hmm. it were. So, you know, you've always got to temper these things. And I'm always very cautious as well as, a, you know, someone who's been a founder now for 11 years, I feel old, talking about <laughs> getting old before, 11 years that, you know, it's not all amazing. Like there's a lot of sacrifice and all, a lot of the hard parts mm -hmm. along the way, you know? Yeah, scrape the surface, sounds amazing. Dig into the detail, not so amazing quite often. A lot of sacrifice, right? Yeah, 100%. A lot of sacrifice.
you have to miss you have to miss the birthdays you have to miss the weddings yeah you know it's going it's not just the flight it sounds all nice but it's the constant travel to and from yeah. missing meetings adjusting meetings late meetings early meetings yeah definitely yeah. and then um you know when you've got actually the data to back it up yeah. and you see like yeah i love that nice i, I like that you're a whoop rather than aura as well i feel like yeah. we're, we're 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 definitely there the better of the of the i'm gonna say i've got the black one i feel like you should have this one not the green you you really went out there with the color scheme yeah i know right big change i used to have the black one but i decided to go for this <laughs> um when you see the data of the impact of all the flying as well you're like oh actually this is also a big health sacrifice too yeah 100 percent. we'll touch on sacrifices in a bit UK to the, or US to the UK technology market, you've run tech businesses mm -hmm. for 11 years or so. Big differences in the two markets. What do you personally see as the biggest difference now you are bridging both markets? Yeah, it's a really good question. And obviously real sport was a totally different business in terms of B2C stuff. So, you know, it, it's hard to really go into depth on that. But the, the, the first things that I've seen from companies that I've invested in, from things we've seen at Connected is Europe's a bit more transactional. You know, America seems is a little bit more relationship-based, which is interesting. And then in the US, much more direct around, well, where's the very clear, you know, dollar value of doing business together, which I love. And I think that's great. And it allows you to be really methodical in the way that you do business. And although it's relationship based, it's still very much around, well, you know, how are we making money out of this? Let's make money out of this together, which I think is great. And if you've got a good product and something that can really help people, I think you can make things happen a lot quicker, um, which is, is strange. It's almost like reverse from the relationship bit I mentioned, but what I see from that is you'll, you'll go for dinner with a customer in America. They'll want to get to know you. They'll want to sit down face to face. They'll want to do those things. Whereas if you do that in Europe, maybe that counts for something a bit more. If you start building, you know, you, you do business together because you like each other in Europe and you start building a relationship that way. But in the US, you can build an amazing relationship with someone and, you know, you're great and blah, blah, blah. But as soon as the money goes, like, it's done. It's, it's so focused on the dollar. It's a, it's a really interesting one, though. I love that environment. I think it's, it's so conducive to making things happen quickly. And I think it's also conducive to really getting dollar value out of a relationship, uh, maybe in a way that Europe's a bit less brutal with. Mm. But um, yeah, it's an interesting one for sure. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I pretty much always say that, especially from a technology point of view, not necessarily a relationship point of view, but a technology point of view, the trends seem to hit the US and somewhere between two and four years, mm. then hits the UK, um, especially in anything online or social media. You kind of, if you're on it with the US monitoring, you can then see that come to the mm. UK a couple of years later and you can get ahead of the game. Have you seen that? Have you found that? That's really interesting. I think you're totally right. And I don't know what you've seen, but one of the things that always blows me away in the US is the level of technical awareness on average in the US is much, much higher than the UK. Most people you're speaking to in the startup ecosystem in the UK, well, a lot of them have, you know, they got finance backgrounds, they're marketing, they're, they're various different roles, design, but maybe they don't have as much technical understanding. In the US, it feels to be much more mature in that sense, which also makes sense considering how much longer they've been investing in venture and i think how much more the schools from what i've seen put an emphasis on you know technical knowledge versus the uk um but then i think that that really speaks to your point about you know 
much quicker technical adoption as well. Yeah, agreed. I think the adoption is a lot quicker in the US. I think we get there. I think a lot of the governmental impact that they want to make us a tech hub, they want to grow that scene starts at the bottom. Um, So it's going to be interesting to see if they do invest that time, energy, regulatory power Mm. into our education, but then founder support in the UK compared to the US is pretty poor, Mm. in my opinion, Mm. especially the everyday founder, which is the name of this podcast. So quick plug there. Love that. Um, (laughs) But I think the biggest challenge you've got is that if you run and I'm going to say this very loosely, a boring business, one that may have been done before, even if you can deliver that service better than anyone else on the planet, there's very little support compared Mm. to yourself who might be a three-person business than someone who might be a 5,000-person business. Mm. Same grants are available, same sort of financial help is available, and the the cost of everything is the same. Whilst in the US, there's a lot of Mm. support in that arena, especially for the really small businesses totally totally i think the the level of federal and state grant funding is crazy i mean i I spoke to someone recently so in ohio and i've i feel like i'm gonna get this 97 percent correct (laughs) there's always gonna be three percent which i I, I mess up but in ohio um they've taken the sales tax that comes from alcohol and created a startup investment fund at state level like things like that, which you would just never get in the UK because we just don't think like that and we don't invest in that way, is amazing. Like imagine if London had a <laughs> alcohol-backed startup fund. Do you know what I mean? Like it's so cool. Like things like that is, and it's that level of innovative thinking that we don't have here and would never happen. One to to your point, I think you're a hundred percent right. And I I'm not someone afraid of criticizing government by any means. But one policy that I really agreed with was Rishi Sunak talking about making people study maths until 18. And it was so widely ridiculed, but I think it's exactly the sort of thing that needs to happen to level up the next generation on you know, engineering, more technical. I think that, the, yes, there are arguments around no code and everything else, but the more engineering talent we have, the better. And I think maths is a you know, precursor to that. I, I know for sure that when I was a student, you know, the way that the arts, when I was a you know secondary school student, the way that the arts were romanticized because we're Britain, English, literature, history, these things are good, they're important, don't get me wrong. I studied politics at university, international relations at, at a master's degree, and I learned a lot and loved it, but it was never put to me like, actually engineering might be something interesting to look at, computer science, like it was not pushed in the mm. way that it should have been. Yeah, I did business at university, if I do do over, if I could meet all the same people, I'd 100% add on a computer science or some sort of technical expertise in that because I feel like my soft skills are okay, but my technical skills actually relatively don't exist um, outside of just learning on the job. Mm. Um, So yeah, it would have been definitely very useful. So let's talk about indulgence. What is your biggest indulgence? It's one of my favorite subjects. ADHD, right? Yep. So ADHD means that your brain functions differently to the healthy brain. So in most brains, the task and focus modules fire asynchronously. In an ADHD brain, they fire synchronously. And the way that we regulate those two modules to act healthily or in a healthy way is through dopamine. So we love dopamine. And dopamine makes it go asynchronous. That means we can focus. It's the same reason why I think there's such a high 
prevalence of ADHD in the entrepreneurial community versus the general population because we thrive on that dopamine, we focus. So there's high risk things like we were talking about before. I don't know where I'm going to live in seven weeks' time. That sort of thing is it cool? That that gives me that risk gives you some some gas to focus, some like fuel to focus. One of the easy ways of getting dopamine is indulgence, right? You can indulge in anything; it will basically mm. give you dopamine, right? Um, but I'm bad with food. Like we said before, I can do three weeks of like training every day. Currently got a, a fractured wrist. So the training's been a bit out, but I quit vaping as well. Okay. I, it was my life support system. <laughs> I tried to sleep with this thing in my mouth to still get nicotine during the evening. Obviously, you know, a bit of an exaggeration, sure. but you know, quit now. 20, what's the date? 29 days, no vaping. So consciously trying to reduce those indulgences, but food's a killer man like especially the adhd thing if you can go to something like sugary processed yeah but you know trying to cut those things out. what's the we're not sponsored by either yet so <laughs> what's the uber eats or delivery order oh that's a good question i, look, I love sushi I love sushi, sushi. Yeah, yeah you can't go wrong with sushi but then um yeah just like I, honestly it's so just depends on where my mind goes to in that moment right what about you Maltesers. Maltesers. Give, give me a pack of Maltesers. They're gone nice. within an instant. But can't buy like, those snacks. Can't buy biscuits. <laughs> can't buy Maltesers. If they're in the house, they're gone. Yeah, It's yeah. that simple for me. There's, there's no in between. Yeah. So I was lucky I didn't have a sweet tooth. Oh. Don't have a sweet tooth. Fortunate for that. God, I actually wish I was the other way. I mm. wish I didn't have a sweet tooth because it just can't be bought. Yeah. Like, I'd love to say that I would just have one segment of Terry's Orange, but that ain't happening. There yeah. is no way that's, that's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, you're an exited founder. You sold a business at the ripe sort of age of the mid twenties, which not many can say they can do, especially not for 2.4 million, which is the reported figure. Like you, you had other in, uh, people involved in that business, mm. of course. What was it like going back to school, back to employment? You had a period of time which you had to see out the buyout, I imagine. Um, what was it like? Yeah, I mean. It was a super interesting learning experience. So the CEO of Gfinity at the time was a guy called Gary Cook. Um, Gary was the CEO of Man City during the takeover from Mansoor family. He was the chief brand officer of the UFC during the purchase from the Fatita brothers. And then um, he was, according to him anyway, uh, was the guy working alongside Michael Jordan within Nike to found Nike Jordan. He was on the board there, like awesome guy. Um, so it was amazing to learn from him for a year and just see what he was about and just understand that side of things. But, you know, Gfinity was a, uh, a publicly listed company, uh, which was which was great, really interesting learning experience. But I love startups, right? I love the private world. So, uh, yeah, I did, did my year lock in. I think I handed in my notice two days after that lock in ended. So I didn't <laughs> wait around too much, uh, but then started investing in startups at the time and you know, got really lucky with some of them, not so lucky with others, sure. the usual thing. Um, but yeah, it was, I don't, I don't know. I guess at that age, there was never a thought that I could stay employed. Probably when, if you sold a company when you're 45, 50, and you think, yeah, actually, do you know what? I can't be bothered to go back on the, back on the cycle. And, you know, with Gfinity, it was never a case of like, oh, I've got, you know, someone to report into. It was a very much a free role. So I think maybe if you're in your late 40s or something, you could probably go back to something like that if you enjoyed what you did and believed in the project. But at 26, 27 after the lock-in, there was no way I was going to stay an employee at that time. Didn't fancy the world travel? Take, take, not necessarily forever, but you didn't fancy the big sabbatical and explore the world? Yeah, I mean, I did that for like four months 
after the year lock-in, so the lock-in ended in March 2019, I guess. Started working on Connected October 19. Right. So that like six, seven month period, I was doing a lot of stand-up. Did stand-up for like a long time at that point. It was, was a lot of fun. Was training hard, just enjoying life. It was mm. it was a good time, but it didn't last long, as you say. Mm. Seven months, and I had really, really itchy feet. Is that the happy yeah. feet, itchy feet? That's itchy the, feet. Happy feet. Happy feet. feet is the a penguin film. thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but I will tell you what. When I sold Real Sport, uh, despite you know, I my family did not have money growing up. Like we nearly lost the house on many many occasions. All, all the usual things. Despite me getting a life changing sum of money at, at that age. Um, you still go through the whole identity death thing. Like, what am I going to do? Like, if I'm found a guy and my next thing isn't successful, who am I? And like all of those things, you know, you go through the ringer like, oh, should I become a fireman? Like, am I going to work with guide dogs? Like, these are all the things that I was- Am I going to be a stand-up comedian? Right, these are all the the things that I was struggling with at the time. Um, So I think regardless of the outcome, you're always going to deal with that identity death thing. Um, you know, post, which is interesting. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, the logical step for me would obviously be stand-up comedy. I think that is the natural step. But what was your sort of bigger money in the bank account? Mm-hmm. Day two, shit, that's a lot of money. What what did you spend on? What was, what was your biggest purchase? Yeah, well, I mean, we got we got fortunate because we had like a lot of really big bonuses attached to it, like with joining the new company, and like there was there was a lot of good stuff going on in that side. I was. I tried to be as smart as possible. Bought, you know, a fair bit of property, and then smart. Um, yeah, and, and tried to just be smart with that, and then basically put everything else into angel investing, which was which was fun, risky, I mean, but it's, that's it's a, that's a gamble, really. A at huge the the gamble. Day, right? But I realised like if I just bought property and put the rest in angel investment, then one at that age, at that time, having no experience of having actual disposable income in that way, I was like, if I hold on to this, <laughs> it's not a smart decision to sure. make. Um, so yeah, you know, you do a few things, gave some money to some people to manage and you know, the usual stuff. Amazing. Amazing. We talked off camera. You're a big Man United supporter. Mm-hmm. Uh, competitiveness. Are you competitive? Do you think it's important for founders to be competitive? It's interesting. I wouldn't say I'm a competitive person. I think very, very motivated. And I think, you know, maybe some of those motivational traits are good some are bad in terms of like sometimes like you have to create something to stay motivated sure. you know you have to create an enemy in the mind or create <laughs> something you know you have to do that a little bit but i don't think i'm competitive like i'm not i'm a fairly easygoing person i wouldn't say i i need to be the best this needs to be the best at that like I, I, i'm not i wouldn't class myself as competitive interesting i mean i think there's a fine line between ego mm-hmm. and comp- being competitive mm-hmm. or competitiveness um, so it's interesting you say that. You, yeah, you definitely come across as a very easygoing guy. But I think a lot of founders, they very much are just going, who's second, who's first, who's third mm-hmm. in my market? And I'm going to pick on, not necessarily pick yeah. on you, but I'm going to make sure that I win. Yeah. For me, it's all about winning. Yeah. Um, and I've had a few founders already on this podcast who it's very clear they want to win. Yeah. Um, and that might be an internal thing. You know, mm. maybe it's it's the golf adage, which it's all about yourself. It's mm-hmm. all about the internal thing. Maybe it's another sport or for them, it's often business. It's I mm. want to win. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think I think there's there's two points here. There's like wanting to win and then there's like wanting to beat someone else, right? So for me, what like we we aggressively hunt down. We we're gonna be we're gonna grow ten percent month on month every month for the first two and a half years, now growing seven, eight percent month, and we we fight for those. 
but I don't see it as like a, so you know Y Combinator? Sure. Um, they do their like advice for startups. One of the best things that I read from them was you're 10 times more likely to die from suicide than from murder. Focus on the competition, yes, but the thing that kills you is not gonna be the competition. You know, because realistically, if you've picked a big enough market, you're not gonna have 100% market penetration, right? There's always gonna be competitors. The thing that's gonna kill you is suicide. And that normally comes down to people. And for me, then having that like ego element when you're so much more likely to succumb to actually people problems doesn't make sense. So for me, it's like, yes, look at the competition, understand that, but we want to be the best versions of ourselves. We want to be the best that we can be. We're going to treat each other well. We're going to lift each other up. We're going to help each other there rather than fostering a culture of individuality of I'm the best in that way. And that's just the way that I see it. Um, and we know with all these things, there is no blueprint. That's just what happens to work at some time for some person. Uh, but that's just how I see it. Yeah, completely agree. I think there is an element of when, depending on the size you're at or maybe who you are as a business or mm-hmm. where you are as a business, sorry, is there is enough to go around for mm-hmm. everyone. I'm not saying you should be like, oh yeah, don't worry, competitor, you take this one. But yeah. there is a level of, if you focus internally and get your own stuff sorted, yeah then you're much more likely to succeed than being like worried about the competition, worry about the competition because that's very glamorized mm-hmm. from maybe TV or mm-hmm. movies or media. But actually, as you say, the majority of your problems are in probably your own sales processes. Yeah. Like at the end of the day, it's all about lead gen. Like if you, or revenue, I actually heard you say this on another podcast. Mm-hmm. It's all about lead generation. If you can sort that top, top, top element out, everything else falls into place. 100%. So growth are connected what would you say is the most important factor for the next 12 months of growth for connected and also where have your sort of businesses or customers come from because that's what you're all about you're all about businesses and community yeah really good question i think we're so aligned on this one mate like it's everything's downstream from lead gen and it's because it takes many many years or, or at least you know three years to get a product market fit right it doesn't happen overnight unless you are slack and yeah, you know sure. and fair enough but very few of us are right very few of us are slack so the only way to have those attempts at getting product market fit is having enough goes at hitting the market and you can only do that with lead gen right mm. so everything's downstream from lead gen in terms of, of what's really funded our growth um to date is as i said linkedin's a really important acquisition channel for us Google's important as well, but then that network effect bit is really, really key. Founders distributing reports to investors. Investors say, great, I can get everything in one place, distributed to founders. And obviously, as we try to inch towards and optimize towards product-led growth, we focus more and more on those network effects, on those growth loops in the product. But in terms of like big plans for this year, um, so we want to keep on growing the UK business. The UK business is generating... Uh, I don't want to try and do conversions on the fly, but roughly 5 million ARR USD. Now they're focusing on, on the US. Everything's USD for us. Um, so just like 5.1 million USD. Um, and then we've just launched in the, U- the US. And then we are, we've secured our first three or four enterprise partners. Okay. I can probably mention one of them because we did a press release with them, which is Pearson, the FTSE 50 or 100 uh, education company, yeah. which is awesome. Huge. But there's three others that we're working with, sort of billion plus turnover, one in the data space, one in the beverage space, and one in the gaming space. Um, So really different use cases, but we want to scale out the enterprise offering. We know that we have a really, really unique picture of the startup ecosystem. Uh, We know we can provide a lot of value to our businesses by helping them 
connect and understand the enterprise landscape and vice versa as well. Mm, amazing. So exciting times. Mm. But yeah, funny that you're now doing everything in USD. So you, you've gone from a GBP or just, yeah. just saying to everyone a number and now you're going to have yeah. to um, clarify yeah, where I'm yeah, at with that. Exactly. You Well, that's because I think the honesty and transparency piece is so key. Yeah. And I think, you know, we, we live in a world where, you know, a lot of people, I think, I think if we're trying to give back to the community, which I know you are, and I try to do and do this by creating content and we invest in this content to put out there. And of course it benefits us, but it's also to benefit the community. I think there are a lot of people out there who want to give advice, but actually haven't clarified where they're at. And sometimes maybe you should take it with a pinch of salt. I mean, take everyone's advice with a <laughs> yeah, pinch of salt. Of but I think it's helpful to be like, look, if I'm going to do the building in public thing, this is where we are. This is the exact level we're at. So maybe if a pre-seed startup at this point, if I'm talking about what we do now, maybe this advice is not relevant to you. And if you're a Series B company, certainly it's not relevant to you, possibly. Although actually our, 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 our ARR might be what a Series B company was in 2021. Um, so it depends all that. But that's why I think having that transparency is so key. Sometimes I'll see pre-seed founders have never raised a penny, never got to revenue, telling everyone else what to do, how to be a good founder. And I'm just like, come on guys let's let's be honest here and let's help each other yeah absolutely and also just because they're at like a very young or early stage just focus on talking about a exactly. different thing a transition they may have made from a corporate 100%. to a startup right but i think like the biggest one for me is exactly what you said you're doing it related to say market evaluations think about it in let's say a content creation space right uh you've got around thirty thousand uh followers on linkedin well done um but there are found there are content creators out there which have say one hundred thirty thousand, right and more and more of course <laughs> their advice is amazing amazing advice this is how you grow or this is what i'm doing completely great advice yeah hands down but the reality is for the 5000 follower account you need their advice that they told two years ago or what mm -hmm. they were doing a mm -hmm. year ago so look at it and go i will implement this advice maybe in due course or i'm going to make sure that i use my brain because i am a smart person to filter that down to my size no different to your great podcast that you might listen to that has got a founder of a household name on it. Great, cool podcast, but relatively unrelatable. And that's why you want to be listening to maybe your smaller creators mm -hmm. that are on your LinkedIn's probably, or maybe YouTube um, and take their advice because they are telling you how to go from either zero to a million ARR, maybe one to 50, very different from going from 250 million to a billion. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, so it's very, very different, right? Yeah, hundred percent. I think it's a really good analogy on the creator uh, content stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's related to my my field, so it's the easy, course, easy, yeah. easy example. Um, you described, and I say you described because I know that you did through other uh, podcasts and other social medias that your process of selling real sport was brutal, among other adjectives that you used. <laughs> but you decided to go and raise money. For connected mm -hmm. managing the investor it's a bit like managing the manager in my mind i've never raised money personally but managed my managers and i always say to people when they ever ask me advice which is sometimes and relatively infrequent but so i still share it um and they go how can i improve or how can i go from a marketing executive to a manager to a head of which i have done and i say the biggest thing that you can do is manage your manager manage the expectations of your manager will help you succeed and i've believe that that is something which you, sh you basically do a connected, which is very much 
managing that investor relationship. So I have just raised my first ever amount of money. doesn't matter how much. Let's say it's a million USD. How do I manage my investor well? Yeah, great question. And you're 100% right. Again, another, another good analogy. Um, but that's it. Investor relations is probably the most important thing that you can do as a pre-seed founder beyond getting to revenue. Um, and the reason for that is, you know, you're going to have to raise again for the most part. 99% of us will have to raise again. A pre-seed round won't be enough. How you treat your investors post them writing a check is the biggest determiner of whether they'll reinvest and, invest and introduce you to their other investor friends. Um, it, it's, it's a precursor to getting follow-on and getting those introductions. Founders who go quiet, founders who go insular, founders who don't treat investors like human beings post-investment, doesn't look good. Mm. Doesn't look good at all. So what we created with Connected is something that I utilized, you know, real sports, something I wish that I had the first time around and, and many other founders say the same. It's basically just the most frictionless way of doing that IR piece, doing that investor relations piece. Just a really, really clean set of dashboards which you can add all of these important metrics. You can have metrics calculated on your behalf for you direct from your data sources, just everything done automatically to just show investors that you know, you understand where you're good, you understand where you need to get better, you understand where your problems are, you're transparent about them, you're asking them for help along the way. But also, I think the other lost part of why investor relations is important, because everyone seems to get the, you know, human relationship element, but actually, what you're doing is you're setting up your business for a cadence of growth, which is monthly. You're saying we're going to be accountable for our numbers, accountable for moving the needle every month. Now, in the industry we're in, i.e. venture size, venture fit, venture backable companies, we have to be hyper-realistic and realize that VCs only invest in companies who are consistently moving the needle. So setting up your business in that way to say we grow every month, we report every month, we're accountable every month is the only way to really guarantee that you can be a venture fit business. Mm. You say that very well. You, you, you sit between that like advisor of how to fundraise or mm -hmm. advisor of how to deal with investors and give them the tools to be able to manage that relationship. Um, because I would definitely consider investment. I is something which I have definitely considered in the past and chose not to and stayed bootstrapped mm -hmm. for the right or wrong reasons. Maybe one day I'll decide on that. But I definitely wouldn't know where to start within reason. It would be like you did with Real Sport. It would be relatively finger to the wind and hope that I have good advisors and mentors mm -hmm. along the way, which are invaluable. I have a statement for you, mm -hmm. which I would like you to dissect. Okay. I think it's impossible to be a balanced founder or a healthy founder. Interesting. A very interesting one. I think it depends on what stage of company as well. Find me a a balanced, healthy pre-seed founder. And I'll have questions immediately. I know that's such a controversial take, but the realities of when it's just you, it's like raising a child single-handedly, right? It's, it's, it's gonna take everything from you. And if you don't have help and can't afford help, it's brutal. It's a full-time job. It means sleepless nights. It means, you know, attending to it any time of the day when it needs tending to. It's the reality, right? So I think it's very, very difficult. I had a conversation with someone on LinkedIn the other day talking about this, and they said that for them a non-negotiable was on the weekends, they weren't gonna work. You know, they were gonna have that balance as a pre-seed founder. I was like, cool, but 
I, I don't think that's backable. If that's a hard and fast rule, if you've got something massive coming up on the Monday or a huge fire to deal with from the Friday, and well, as a rule, you're not going to touch things on the weekend, like it's insane to me. So I never managed it. But I think when you get to a certain stage, it becomes really important. Um, a lot of founders talk about, you know, the second that you're at a stage where you can afford to stop sacrificing everything, then you, then you should, and that's the best thing for the business. So it depends on the stage, but pre-seed, yeah. good luck. Yeah, super good luck, <laughs> especially also bootstrapped or anything else. Anything in that early stage, like obviously not every business is made for mm -hmm. raising funds. Um, so obviously the clarity there, pre-seed counters mm. a lot of different businesses. I think healthy means a lot of different things. So there is one side of it, which is time, which I think for many of us is the end goal, time and freedom, um, which we'll maybe discuss in a second. But for me, working on weekends, I try not to, because it's my time when I spend time with family, friends, etc. But if there's something coming up or I have to, or something overflows, I'm obviously doing mm. that work or I'm taking that meeting on the weekend. I think there is just a level of, I would love mentally, potentially, to clock off at 5 p.m. Mm. on a Friday. But let's be honest, I'm checking my emails throughout the weekend. Yeah. I'm checking Slack messages. I am adding to that slide of a pitch deck, whatever that may look like. You just don't turn off. I just, I, so I think that element, whether you call that healthy or unhealthy, is up to you. I don't think if you're a CEO or founder of any size that you can flick that switch. And to be honest with you, I think most founders love that mm. um i personally love that um you got the other side of healthy these guys we're not sponsored by these guys either but <laughs> let's talk about whoop um how have you found it have you found being having a little personal trainer on your wrist telling you that you've slept shit or telling you that you shouldn't do that habit because at the end of the day this is now tracking habits mm. if you should work out that day it's it's a nagging mistress um, to some extent. Um, how have you found it? Yeah, I mean, I love it. It's great, but it can also be a bit depressing, right? Last night, I had a terrible sleep, woke up with 28% recovery, and I was just like, oh, gutted. And someone told me, again, don't know if this is true, but I did hear this. McKinsey did a study on the impact of um, reading negative biometric data on the rest of your day. And like when you wake up and see you have a poor recovery score, you have a worse day yep. than if you had the exact same stats, but didn't know. So I think it's a bit of a double-edged sword, but I love it. Like, I think it is great and definitely has helped with a lot of habit improvement. But I've had two injuries in the last 15 months, actually the last eight months, nine months, I guess. One was a knee injury, couldn't really train for like three, four weeks. And I got this wrist injury. And then it's like, oh, I see my stats just yeah. obliterated, <laughs> like strains through the floor, like... So, you know, you, you, I, think, I think it's amazing. Like, it's definitely been a really enjoyable part of getting healthy. And I think we live in such an amazing time. Between this, like, the ability to understand the impact of nutrition, all those things, like, we can, we can just have a different level of health and the accessibility and affordability around that versus the, the types of insights we're getting would have just been unattainable <laughs> yeah. for, for, for any, for, you know, 99% of people just five, six years ago, I guess. 100%. I think red recovery, seeing that first thing in the morning will make me have a worse day. Mm -hmm. Doing my journal, which is a feature on which you can like sort of track your habits and everything else in the in the evening has definitely done me better favors. But then if you look at it in the evening, it kind of defeats the purpose of mm -hmm. using it because 
it's basically there to tell you you kind of you had a poor recovery so therefore you should work on your body that day like that's the yeah. whole purpose of this technology that you're spending a good amount of money on so i'm very conflicted the psychology side of it and the whatever else but if you have that self-discipline to look at a 30 percent and know you've got that cycle class booked mm. to be able to pick yourself up and just go do it yeah. then you know fair play uh, i i definitely have found it for me it's an eye-opener complete eye-opener um i have cared about my fitness for solid four or five years i really dedicated myself to sort of building lean mass and really just really focusing in on that and i think it does of course like many people say it helps me mm-hmm. at work and it makes me better um but yeah, seeing rare recovery is not always the yeah. nicest thing. And it's interesting, like some of the insights are super depressing. So on a day where I'm socially fulfilled, my recovery is like 4% worse and stuff like that. So it's interesting to see like some of the things depending on what you're tracking. But uh, for me, alcohol and eating late, that's that's the, th- the thing. I mean, obviously it makes sense, but those two things, if I do those versus I don't do those, like it's the biggest impact on recovery. Mm, 100% alcohol. I mean, it's, it's the obvious one, yeah. but when you have numbers and digits literally telling you how much it impacts you especially when you get aligned to sort of trying to get good scores and mm. the, the gamification of it which they do very well mm. super impactful um definitely highlighted a lot for me yeah uh, next on my list is zoe i want to i want to do zoe i want to track good. my food um not done that yet let I me know, know when a, you start doing it yeah i'll let you know let we'll have another know. conversation yeah. i really want to try food habits next that's next mm. on my list um Let's talk about non-negotiables. What, Roy Samuel, what is your non-negotiable? Ooh, tough question. Really, really good question. In the context of like work. Take it as you will. I want to have my seven hours sleep. Like that's, that's, that's something which I'll always, if something else goes, I'll sacrifice anything else before sleep. So I guess that will be the thing that I focus on. On a night like last night, it just didn't happen for various reasons. But if I'm going to sacrifice, I'll sacrifice gym, I'll sacrifice, you know, going out, I'll sacrifice anything else if I can favor sleep over that. So I'd say that's my priority in terms of like how I want to live my life is make sure I get those seven hours sleep. Um, and the other thing is really just going against my own morals. Like, for example, um, I recently had a situation, and you'll have this in business, right, where I felt someone was trying to bully me a little bit over a contract thing and it was like a relationship which i've been building for a couple of years and yeah and do you know what i was like i'm not going to do it i'm just not going to continue with that relationship yes there'll be some loss to me and to, to connect it for, for, for not going through that but actually at that point where i was like i can either swallow my morals and not and and you know not be able to feel that i have stood up what i think is right and what i think is wrong um that was something i would negotiate on so I think there's things like that, which at the end of the day, like you never know when your time in the business is finished, when you exit a business, like you never know those things. You have to do the things which at the end of the day, you can look at yourself in the eye, in the mirror and be like, I did the right thing. I did, I, I did the right thing by myself. And I'm proud of, of how, how I responded to that situation. Hmm. 100%. No, one, no one's getting in the way of my sleep and no one's, no one's going against my morals either. So values and morals are super important from a relationship, personal relationship your other half, right the way through to colleagues, team members, co-founders, and of course, potential clients as well. It's, it's a lot harder when you're really early on because then mm. sometimes the desire for the, for the initial cash influx may ask you mm. to go against those morals or values. And that is a hard conversation to have. 
Yeah. Um, but many do have. Yeah. Um, and I think especially if, for me, like I wouldn't say I've got this really comprehensive value system because I, I think things are so pragmatic. Like, you have to be pragmatic and also like in a world where everyone's going on their own journey, you, you don't understand people's motivations. Why do they do that? So I think as long as you are, can be fairly pragmatic, but know where your red lines are, then you can really you know stay strong to them, right? Yeah, 100%. Connected them, Roy Samuel, what is your success? What are you working towards? What does success look like for you? From my perspective, when I look at the early stage ecosystem, you've got so many amazing, hardworking, well-meaning, driven, ambitious people wanting to solve the biggest problems in the world. I want to make that easier for them all. If we can just help remove some of the friction from discovery and management of relationships, which is such a key part, you know, in the early stage ecosystem, then we can do a great thing. There are businesses that I see who have come through Connected, using Connected, who are doing amazing work. And I love that we can support them in that way. You know, I've spoken uh, about Limitless Travel, which is, uh, you know, a company which is doing amazing things, like genuinely changing lives of, you know, disabled people. And they were able to grow in a way that they couldn't do without Connected. And I'm just so proud Mm. to have, being able to facilitate part of like Angus's amazing journey and, and all that side, like that's what it's about for me. 100%, love it. Thank you very much, Roy Samuel. You've been my everyday founder. James, you're a legend. Thank you, mate. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Everyday Founder. If you haven't already, like or subscribe wherever you are watching or listening to this episode. If you know of an incredible founder that story needs to be shared, then let me know who you would like to see next on The Everyday Founder via the comment section or messaging me on LinkedIn. These episodes are brought to you by Shake Content, your LinkedIn content agency. So please show them support on all socials so that we can keep bringing you amazing guests and sharing their stories on The Everyday Founder.